if most people, in my estimation, would send maybe five probing emails to agents a day, what if I said 30? What if I said 40? Welcome everyone to season one of the Gritcast. Today we'll be chatting with Aviana Mynir about her journey from tech to entertainment and how resilience factors into the early actor hustle. So without further ado, here's Aviana. Hi everyone and welcome to the Gritcast, the show where we talk to trailblazers about grit, anti-fragility, and the journey it takes to get there. Today I am joined with Aviana Mynir. She is an accomplished actor who currently plays Rachel on The Walking Dead. Previously, she studied at Stanford and was active in the arts, technology, and virtual reality scenes. She's the host of the podcast Uprising, and she's also one of the kindest people I know. So welcome to the show, Aviana. So excited to have you. That was the sweetest intro ever. My goodness, thank you. (laughs) I'm so happy to chat with you. Yes, likewise. Oh my gosh. But I thought before we dive into, you know, the meat of things, to do a brief check-in with you, Aviana, how are things during COVID? For the future audience, we are recording this during the backdrop of the pandemic. So I'm curious, what has your day-to-day been like? How have you been keeping sane and grounded during this time? You know, for a great portion of it, I wasn't. (laughs) For a great portion of it, I dipped through sadness and um, loneliness and Uh, everybody is so isolated. I don't think we're meant to be this isolated as human beings. And so the reality is I didn't navigate it any better than anyone else did. Mm. I tried to get myself out on some trips and in the fresh air. And I think after about a year of this now, which is crazy to think about, we're coming up on the year mark. I finally found some strategies that have helped me. And I think journaling is one of them. I'm a huge Mm. journaler. Painting is one of them. I'm a poor painter, but let me tell you, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Especially wine and paint nights. Oh my God, wine and paint nights for sure. And ultimately, if you call it modern art, you can do anything. Okay, okay, I like that. (laughs) What is that famous French pipe drawing again? It's like, say, say, I don't know, I don't speak French, so I'm going to butcher it, but like, say, um, or something. <laughs> not, no, I'm not even, I'm not an art like connoisseur by any means, but ultimately I end up like throwing things on a canvas and then someone will say, oh, that has dynamism. And I'll say, that's exactly what I intended. <laughs> Ooh, so interpretive, Aviana. Yes. <laughs> okay. So it sounds like being able to have creative outlets during this time, it sounds like with painting, with journaling, reflecting in general, also starting your own podcast, which I want to dive into later on, has been a centering practice for you. Right. And I think trying to dig in and understand the things I don't um, fully comprehend, like with this recent, um, depending on when this is released, is recent for us, the political turmoil at the Capitol, like stuff like that, our our race relations, those things really get to my core as just a global citizen, a human being. And that has been probably one of the most challenging things of this pandemic. So what I've been doing, which might help other listeners, is trying to find people or sources that I can learn from to help understand the other side. So say for myself, I'll speak for myself, I'm not, you know, extreme right, politically at all. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that side was really important for me to try to find peace, because I think that understanding underpins the common ground that our country is looking for. And when I feel like I can support that, then I feel a little bit closer to helping create the future that I want to see. 
I didn't think we would get so deep so quickly, but uh, one of my favorite quotes has been, it's really hard to hate someone up close. Once you understand someone's story, once you get to know them, and everyone does have a story, it is really, really hard to not see their point of view. Absolutely. You know, I just listened to a podcast called No Compromise produced by NPR, and it really does a deep investigative dive into the gun rights advocacy and extreme right. And I, I really think it's important for everybody to understand each other. So I, I, I commend you. I think that's a, that's a great quote and that helps in a weird backward fashion, but it does. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, definitely reflecting and also practicing during empathy during this time sounds like it's been a really healing practice for you. Mm -hmm. But Aviana, I thought we would start by reflecting on earlier moments of your journey overall. So you were born in San Francisco, but moved to the Los Angeles area as a young child. What prompted this move to LA and what was it like growing up between these cities? Mm, you know, I moved around a lot growing up because of my dad's job. So I was born in San Francisco, oddly enough, right outside the pearly gates of Stanford, where you and I met. <laughs> and when I actually came full circle and went back to where I was when I was just two and three, I was playing at the parks right in Palo Alto. I came back and I was like, wow, you I could never expected that I'd come back here for this turning point in my life, which college is for so many people and, and be right back where I started. And at that time, my parents were shopping for groceries at gas stations. Like they were so um, desperate to, to create a life for us. And, and so I think all of our moves and ultimately our move to the Southern California area came from that desire. You know, they were, they were trying to create a life that they, they envisioned for us. So we moved to Texas. I've lived in Seattle, um, on an island called Mercer Island. I don't know if you've heard mm -hmm. of it. Um, mm -hmm. And then, yeah, and then back to Southern California where I went to high school and we met at college and now I'm back here in LA in the entertainment industry. <laughs> okay, I did not, I tried to do my research, but I did not know that you were so nomadic growing up. And so when you say we, can you break that down a little bit more? What was your family dynamic like? Yeah, so I, just like every other human, have two parents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and my mom is um, an economist and a professor, and my dad works in healthcare. And my sister, um, she studied screenwriting at NYU and now is a director in Los Angeles. Um, she's two years older than me, and then I'm the middle. And then my little brother, he is actually just graduated. He'd had a Zoom graduation. Oh. Shout out to any other <laughs> Zoom graduations out there. <laughs> Did they have like a Roblox component? Because I know some schools have been using gaming as, as an alternate media. Oh, no, I, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, so some people have been hosting graduation ceremonies on Roblox or... I don't know if Fortnite has, has come into the picture. I don't think so. I'm not the biggest gamer, but there's definitely been some push into a whole other metaverse, I think, is what Ooh, they Oh, I love that. Yes. I love that. Sounds way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that's my family unit. That's my, my little brother studied astrophysics, and now he's working at a lab in, um, at Harvard. And so everybody's kind of found their spot now. And, and we're, we're just trying to get through this pandemic. <laughs> oh my God, Aviana, quite the eclectic family. I mean, parents who were professors and very much in the education space. And then your sister also being in the arts, you being in the arts, and then your brother studying. Did you say astrophysics? That is, right. that is so crazy. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's a smart cookie. 
<laughs> so you touched on this a bit earlier, Aviana, that your family had to persevere through some trials and tribulations growing up. Earlier, you mentioned shopping for groceries at, at the gas station. What, to the extent you're comfortable sharing, what were these experiences like and what did they teach you? You know, I think they shaped so much of who I am. I mean, my parents, no matter what they were going through, and they were working three jobs, night shifts, um, everything they could to help us not see all that they were desperate for. Mm. And, and that was was such a gift. I mean, looking back, I, I, I never saw our circumstances as lesser or I was never embarrassed by it because they made it so special. Like, yes, my, my dad would take me on his hip and take me to the gas station and I would pick out the milk I wanted. And I was excited to do that. And he would come home and we'd, we'd cook a meal and he would, he would light candles every night in our tiny apartment. And he would make it special. He'd play music, we'd sing, we'd clean up together. Like, I think that is ultimately actually what I ended up writing my college essays about is like the kind mm. of life that my parents made had nothing to do with what we had and everything to do with what they made of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's so crazy because even as someone who, you know, I count you as a good friend of mine, Aviana, I had no idea this uh, this background of yours, right? Like we see these brand names of Stanford, Harvard, or your dad being a consultant and your mom being a professor. We see these as lofty titles, but in fact, behind the facade, there was a lot you all had to push through. Um, so first of all, thank you for sharing that. But second of all, um, I'm, I'm curious if you remember in the Stanford application, there is the, the classic prompt of what matters to you and why Given that you spoke about your application a little bit, do you remember what topic you wrote about for that? Oh, that's interesting. You know, that one, I think what I was referring to prior was my comic map essay. I think for that mm. one for Stanford, I wrote about this reporting that I did um, in Cambridge when I was studying over the summer. I was studying journalism at Harvard and I was doing this reporting about homelessness in Cambridge. And I started digging into what homelessness meant beyond these inhuman statistics that we all understand and how horrific the statistics are these days. I really wanted to understand the humanity behind it and the people behind these stories. And so I think what mattered to me and why, I think that was the the seed of that essay was those experiences mm. that I had in, in meeting and becoming friends with those people. Mm -hmm. I love it. And it just feels like so long ago that we wrote that. And also as little kids writing that, it's like, who, who knew what they were talking about back in the day? <laughs> it's true. It's true. But I think that is like the best thing to highlight. You know, I remember highlighting that in my essays, like, look, I don't know much, but I know what these people told me and they've lived full lives, you know, they're in their sixties and seventies. And so here's what I'd like to do with mine. <laughs> and that's really mm -hmm. all you can say at 18 or 17. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so speaking of Stanford and university, which is where we met through the dance scene. Yes. Uh, it's <laughs> as someone who I presume has always been an artist at heart. What was it like for you studying at a more tech focused institution? gosh, that's such a good question because I had no idea what it would be like. <laughs> I went to a high school that was super arts focused. I, there, there was conservatories. It was very much picture step up <laughs> kind of movie. <laughs> and, and I studied dance. And so when I went to Stanford, I was terrified. 
I was so scared because I'd studied journalism and dance and these more humanities focused topics more closely in high school. And by the time I got to college, I was in Silicon Valley and you know what that means. Like everybody's a founder, everyone's oh, doing yeah. startups. <laughs> Yeah, it's like if you're not doing that, that that means you're weird versus the rest of the world, which is founding is still very much a rarity, but at Stanford, it is very much the norm, it seems like. Totally. And so there's this extreme pressure. And ultimately, that completely shifted what I ended up studying. So I ended up studying science, technology and society, which is this interdisciplinary major that Stanford offers where you can dip your toes in, you know, from engineering to psychology, you know, it's a huge breadth there. And um and that was primarily because of attending a school like Stanford, where there was such pressure on innovation and, and, and technology and how tied that was to current times with the advent of Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook and how they were thriving. It was this energy that and was And Google undeniable. too. Google mm-hmm. was founded by PhD students and Elon Musk also briefly attended Stanford before dropping out. And now he's the richest man in the world yep. as of a few days ago. Uh, so accurate. I so thought crazy. that too. Isn't that wild? <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a big change. I had to make that decision at the end of high school. Do I want to pursue the arts? Do I want to audition for a Juilliard or at NYU? Or do I want to go the academic route? And ultimately, it was such a serendipitous, um, universal tap on the back because I applied. I figured out. I found the Stanford application at 10 p.m. the night it was due at midnight. You know, I found it within, oh my God. like, found so two like, hours before it was due. If I was due, I was like, oh, what is this school Stanford? <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is crazy, you know? I, I, I didn't have that, you know, lofty expectation of myself, but I, I looked at, I looked at the app and I was like, oh, I, I feel like I know what I want to write for these. So I quite literally t- tip-tapped into the text boxes <laughs> instead of drafting it separately <laughs> like I should have been and submitted it literally I submitted the I think the app right at midnight and then like paid for it after or something one of them happened after midnight and I was so worried it wouldn't be accepted but yeah so I think a lot of me ending up at Stanford was so serendipitous Mm, I love that and you also mentioned earlier in high school you went to more of a performing arts oriented school and you were thinking about or you studied journalism and dance so going into Stanford, I imagine those two were at the forefront of your mind, but how did that shift as your journey through higher education progressed? You know, I started attending these women's conferences. I, I went to India. You know, there was a lot of things that, that led me to it. I think starting with the latter, I, I went to India the summer after my freshman year and saw the need for women in science and women in tech Um, while I was working there and teaching there. And then I came back and started attending these global women's conferences because I was so moved by what I saw in India that I wanted to be part of progressing the health rights and well-being of women all over the world. And so I said, I'm going to attend these conferences every opportunity I can get. And I, I did. And ultimately what I saw was a gap and I wanted to fill it. And it's funny because now I'm no longer in that space, but that is the truth of why I ended up starting it. I actually don't think it was out of sheer passion for science or tech or anything like that, but rather a desire to, to fill a gap that I saw and to, to walk the walk in that way. And, and what I ended up finding was 
I could do that, but only for so long and until my artistic cup would start to feel so empty. And by the time that I was applying for a master's at Stanford, I was looking at the app and I was like, something in me feels off. Like perhaps I can keep supporting and taking part in, in promoting women and, and girls and participating in, in STEM, but I'm not sure that's where I'm best used right now. Mm. So it's kind mm. of a full trajectory there. So it sounds like at Stanford, you experienced this renaissance almost of being more aware or pa- becoming more passionate about women's issues. So what, what's been one of your favorite memories from attending one of these conferences or favorite learnings that still sticks with you to this day? Oof. I mean, there are too many to count. <laughs> um, well, you know, one of my favorites, um, it's called Women Deliver and it's a global conference that's held every three years, somewhere new in the world. So one time it was in Copenhagen, another time in Vancouver and Hillary Clinton came, spoke. I mean, Melinda Gates, of course, but even like the mother of the revolution of Yemen. And mm. suddenly you're hearing from women or um, this this woman that started the first um, women founded bank in rural India to help these impoverished women in India start saving little by little, penny by penny, saving money. And that money gave them agency and power over their own lives. And so you meet these women from all over the world in different circumstances, but they're all united in their common desire to progress women's rights. And so I think some of my favorite experiences are typically when I hear from a woman from Saudi Arabia that tells me like an authentic narrative about what she's overcome. It's funny that this podcast is about grit because so much of what inspires me is grit, which is why I was mm. excited to talk to you and um, share this topic with you because that's all I see at the conferences. I see resilience and perseverance everywhere. And ultimately that's what I, I end up taking away that that inspiration and bringing it back with me to the States and thinking and jumping on all of the stuff that I learn. Hmm. I, I totally resonate with um, being very inspired by women. I mean, I have this legendary seven, essentially seven people I very much look up to in various different industries and careers. And actually a majority of them are women. They include people like Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey, oh my God, uh, Michelle Obama, Tracy Ellis Ross, these really, really powerful, confident women that have overcome so much. Mm-hmm. I am just infinitely inspired by the resilience and grit that is a part of femininity and womanhood. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I, mean, I really appreciate you saying that. So much of um, the progression includes everybody. And so someone like you saying that really makes you smile. (laughs) I appreciate that, Aviana. Um, So moving on a bit, after Stanford, you mentioned working briefly in technology, but you ultimately decided to pursue a career in entertainment. So walk us through what led to that decision. Uh, You know, I was working and I think sometimes at certain inflection points in life, you get this undeniable gut instinct. It was truly instinctual. I just was looking at my work and felt like a robot and I felt drained of my life. (laughs) And so much of what brings me energy is creativity and art. And so I just had this light bulb moment, as cliche as that sounds, and I turned down my master's, quit my job and moved to LA within six months. 
And it was terrifying, but I felt aligned with my path and that was worth it. That That is pretty powerful. I mean, to, to quit without necessarily even having a safety net or something lined up. Of course, we you know, always have a safety net in terms of the privilege that we've accrued by going to these institutions and where our parents are at. However, it is still very scary to go to LA, a completely new city without, or I guess you grew up in LA, but still a completely new city as an adult without necessarily having something lined up. So right. how did you, how did you have that courage or that conviction to do this despite these circumstances? It's a good question. Um, and I, I grew up in a suburb, you know, I didn't grow up in Los Angeles. So I had no idea mm. what this what the city was like. And yes. whoo, it was scary. I don't know if anyone knows, but it's not known to be the most welcoming city. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like when people think LA, they very much think Hollywood or Beverly Hills, but they do not realize that LA is such a patchwork city. I mean, I am much more inland but the West side is a completely different monster for sure. Right. So that's where I landed. I landed right Mm -hmm. in West Hollywood, you know, right neighboring Hollywood. And ah, what gave me the courage? Desperation, Mm -hmm. desperation to find myself again and Mm -hmm. to, to work from a place of inspiration rather than shoulds. And that was really it. Love that. Yeah, it seems like, Aviana, you have a really strong sense of self. You're very reflective. I mean, it's sounded as early as turning down that master's program at Stanford to go to work and then at work, realizing very quickly it wasn't for you. And then having that maturity and courage to, you know, take that leap of faith and bet on yourself and bet on your dream. So I really love that. Um, but what what were those early days of hustling as an actor? Like what what did the day to day of an early Aviana actress look like for you? <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I I approached it very much like a regular job, like a desk <laughs> job. I was like, well, everybody, when I moved here, I started taking a bunch of classes. I took like three acting classes a week and they're all like four hours long. So I was just drowning myself in, in training and then, and also drowning my bank account in training. <laughs> <laughs> and I... I was getting told left and right everywhere I looked. Oh my God, don't start now. Oh my God, you went to school. What are you doing? This is the most unexpected industry in the world. You cannot expect to find any footing, especially if you're only giving yourself a year or two years to try to do it. And that's the time I'd given myself. I'd said, hey, if, I, if I'm enjoying this in the next year or two, stick around. If not, go back to tech. <laughs> um, and I said, the only way I'm gonna prove that wrong is if I look at it with logic rather than emotion. So I looked at it with logic and I said, all right, well, if most people in my estimation would send maybe five probing emails to agents a day, what if I sent 30? What if I sent 40, you know? Okay, (laughs) 6X, 8X, I love that. So that was my goal. So I literally just sat down every day and treated it very much statistically, logically, and, and just sent out, large numbers of asks and ultimately heard back you know you have a tiny return ratio on cold emails and so I heard back from enough where I could meet with a few and and get my feet wet so that's really how it started 
Mm. And so Aviana, for any aspiring actors in the audience, what are some tips that you have in the early days? Maybe it has to do with cold email etiquette, et cetera, but what, what tips would you have for these personas? Yeah, I would say before you start emailing anyone, make sure you know exactly what you want to do. Because I think you could you could do theater acting, which is a very different beast than on-camera acting. So if you're a theater actor, you're performing to the back row. But whereas if you're a, an on-camera actor, you know, there's this closeness and this personal nature to it that I personally find intoxicating. And so quickly identifying for whomever's trying to find an agent, which one is for you, because that'll distinguish who you're reaching out to. And I've made that mistake, you know, reaching out to the wrong kind of agent and you don't want to waste their time. So making sure you know exactly what you want to do, getting yourself on tape, showing them instead of just talking, but like showing your value. Everybody's just looking to do better at their own job. So if an agent's trying to book work so they get commissions, then they want actors that can actually act. And if you're not proving that really quickly in an email, then they might pass over you pretty quickly. So I tried to make sure that my emails were brief. I tried to make sure that they included resume, photos, content, work, videos, anything I could find to, to add value to the pitch. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it sounds like A, knowing what you want, B, being able to prove it in a concise and succinct way, and three, just focusing on the numbers like you talked about. You have to put yourself out there if you want to get hired, and so do that as much as possible, and it sounded like that worked out really well for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, making it not personal is really hard. I think that's mm. the thing where a lot of people stop. You know, they'll send maybe 10 one day, 10 the next day, get 19 rejections and one that they don't really want to work with and be like, oh, everyone hates me. It's not for mm. me. But the only thing is that that will get you through is literally what this podcast is about. It's grit, it's perseverance. And ultimately that is the only thing that gave me a shot in the entertainment industry. Mm. So Aviana, speaking of these rejections and not taking them personally, that definitely takes a maturation process for anyone to be able to, again, I've said this before, but see failure as an event as opposed to an identity. For you, what is a failure or rejection that you still remember, but have learned a lot of lessons from, from these early days of acting? Oh, I mean, I could list a billion in my whole life, including from high school to college to internships to jobs in regard to acting oh man I think I fail every day I think every mm. time I go into an audition um someone thinks you're failing it's such a, it's such a subjective art form however I can tell you definitely one that comes to mind that happened this last year I, I walked into an audition I'd got this audition very last minute as they typically do come in like a day or two before you're supposed to perform the role Oh, is that common? They don't give you much prep time? No. Interesting. I mean, so much of what I've learned about acting is, is how quickly can you create this character? It's not necessarily who can create the best one, especially if you're working in television, prime, which, mm -hmm. which is where I've worked. Television acting is very much, can you deliver this character in two days? Or can we change the script? I mean, when I was trying multicam comedy on Nickelodeon, it was like handing me a new script minutes before we're shooting it. Like it is multicam comedy. What is what does that mean? 
That means, um, so there's different kinds of shows. There's like an hour long drama or, you know, a multi-cam comedy is something like Big Bang Theory or Friends where they keep, they have these large cameras that they switch between and they're not necessarily mm-hmm. following you with close-ups, you know? Um, so with that, you know, they're changing the script at the last second and the same did go for even The Walking Dead. They're giving you different scripts, same day, hours before, minutes before. So I think that creates a lot of opportunity for failure. <laughs> and so, I mean, one example is I was, I was given this audition last minute in true form and I spent all night, I stayed up through the night, I got it at 8 p.m. and the audition was the next morning. And so I stayed up through the night creating what I wanted for this character and for this script. And I went in for the audition, you know, prepared but sleepless and ready to ready to perform. And I get into the room and the reader starts reading with me. And as I am midway through this audition, I start hearing from the lobby somehow another employee offering the role. I was midway through auditioning to another actor. What? And, and I, I heard it. So I knew that my reader had heard it. And so I finished the scene and then my reader and I kind of look at each other, both having heard that I, they offered the role to someone else. And so in that moment, I felt like, I felt so embarrassed. I felt so disrespected, you know, like it, it does take a lot out of you to put everything into it and then show up ready to be vulnerable and ready to be judged and then not even given a shot. You know, and so I think, I think a lot of those times I walk out feeling like a failure, but ultimately, you know, it's an amalgamation of things. It's, I wasn't, clearly they decided I wasn't right before I even came for it, but that failure is outside of my control in a lot of ways. And I think ultimately a lot of failures are, um, so that, that, that's a crazy one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was that's just so blatant that they did that right in front of you. I mean, that is, as you said, pretty disrespectful, but I, name of the game. I would say that this industry in particular has blown my mind with the etiquette differences. Like when you're mm. working in, in a regular job or um, I would say most industries, there's a baseline level of respect, baseline level of email etiquette, a lot of mm-hmm. things that you kind of learn once you enter the workforce. And mm-hmm. this industry throws all of them out the door. Let me tell you, <laughs> it, it, they just don't care. And that that's, hmm. that's crazy. Where do you think that comes from? Is that from just an artistic nature, a sort of maybe diva dumb? What, what, what do you think that comes from? You know, <laughs> I don't know because the people who are acting this way oftentimes aren't necessarily the actors. Maybe they have their own things, but the people wheeling and dealing are maybe managers or casting directors or producers. And and I don't think you can call, I don't, I don't, I really don't know, Kevin. I wish mm. I had an answer for you on that. I, it's, it's blown my mind since the day I started working in it and to, to this day still exists. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll find maybe. out and get back to you. Oh, please do. Let's, uh, you know, episode two, Aviana <laughs> spills the tea on Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, yeah, it, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that Hollywood is such a legacy industry and there is so much glitz and glam involved and the level of stardom that these uh, actresses and actors achieved in the past and all the money that flows into this industry. I mean, it, it must get to some people's heads. So I, I hear that, but... Aviana, to pivot towards a more 
positive, uh, you know, memories or experiences you've had in Hollywood. So I'm curious about your experiences, and I'm sure the fans are too, of The Walking Dead. I'm not going to ask, how was working on The Walking Dead? Because that's such a broad question. But what is your favorite memory or what is something that surprised you about working with these cast members or the set as a whole, crew as a whole? What surprised me, I think, was how close-knit everyone was. You know, they were truly like a family and that's not the case on every set. Now that I've worked on a few, I, I can tell you for sure that that's not always the case. So I think I was struck by by that, by by the love and the inclusion that existed. Um, I mean, I've had so many friendships born out of that show. So many of the people that I consider close friends of mine now come from those times in Atlanta. And there's something about shooting on a show where you're in a hotel room by yourself every night and waking up at the crack of dawn, shooting until 3, 3 a.m. sometimes running through the forest. <laughs> I don't know. There's <laughs> that something sounds fun, in- running through the forest at 3 a.m. Okay, I can right? get down with that. Me too. There's something about it that bonds you with people though. And so that, that definitely surprised me. Mm, yeah, so it sounds like when you find the right people, when you find that family, there are so many, you know, great gems scattered throughout all of Hollywood. Yes, um, and I'll tell you, when I first went, I embarrassed myself so many times. And I did not know anything. This was the first job, like television job I'd booked. And so I, <laughs> from from trying to parse the meaning of so many things, because there's so much lingo in the industry, to literally getting my, my hair and makeup done the first time, which is very minimal for The Walking Dead, but still it's an exciting <laughs> moment. Oh yeah, do, how do they, do they have to like do a lot of dirt or what, what is the, the makeup oh, process? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, they- Getting people grimy. They get you grimy, they get you greasy, they get you dirty. Mm. And however, you know, I still, I still wanted to be grimy right my first day, you know? <laughs> so, grimy yet stunning is the oh, aesthetic. Oh, oh my God, I hope. <laughs> What a dream that would be. Um, so I remember walking out of the, the hair and makeup trailer and going back to my trailer and they they shuttle everybody to set. And it was my first time going and they're like, okay, Aviana, they're ready for you. Like come to the shuttle. And my script was inside my trailer still. And it's like, oh shoot, okay, I need to bring my script with me. So I run to the trailer and the latch on the door is very, um, it's tight. It, I, I couldn't get it open. And so I'm standing, there's like four steps up and I was standing on the top step trying to open the door. I yank it because the whole crew is waiting for me and the door smacks against my forehead I fall off the trailer and onto the dirt flat on my back and I I looked at the sky and I was like everybody just watched me do that (laughs) everybody just wow this was my first day my first scene mind you so man that was quite an entrance I, I hope that they remember the grace with which I walked onto that set. <laughs> oh my God, there is something so childlike and wonderful about laughing at, I don't know, just just someone tripping or falling, as long as they're not hurt, of course, because it just takes you out of the seriousness that a lot of people walk through with life as, and no, it's like, we all trip all the yeah. time, so deal with it. 
Um, but I, I love that. And I love that you've been able to have these wonderful yet silly memories with the Walking Dead cast and throughout your entertainment career. But speaking of new ventures, Aviana, you also have a podcast. You are also a fellow podcast enthusiast. So right. I wanted to ask a little bit more about what led to Uprising. And for my listeners, by the way, you should definitely go check it out, subscribe, give it all the ratings. Aviana talks to athletes, founders, artists, chefs, everyone about, um, well, I'll hand the floor off to you, but it's, it's an incredible listening experience. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was so fun that we both kind of wanted to start podcasts and we got to do this hand in hand. I love that. Um, yeah, my podcast just talks about, uh, actually, I'll kick it back to why I started it. I was saddened by the sources of inspiration, the people that we had to look up to, especially who the young people had to look up to, our leadership at the time and and the people who are making the news What weren't people that I particularly um, was inspired by. And so I wanted to create a space where everybody could go each week and, and expect that there would be a new person worthy of their time and somebody who would sincerely talk to them about the reality, the, the highs, the lows, the turbulence of, of doing something that they care about. And ultimately I asked every single guest what they wanna make an uprising about in the world in hopes that we can all come together over this their positive cultural uprising that they're seeking to ignite. Mm, I love that, I love that. Well, Aviana, I wanted to flip the tables on you a bit. So what is, what is your personal uprising that you hope to achieve in this lifetime? Mm, that's so fun that you asked me that. <laughs> you know, I've, I've had to ask that so many times that it's so lovely to, to have a second because I think my personal uprising changes every single year. I think right now, I wanna make an uprising about common ground. Mm. I feel so saddened by the division in our country and how much we've dehumanized our own kind, whether it's political divides or racial divides or gender divides or sexuality divides. I don't wanna live on a planet that doesn't start recognizing that we're all 99.9% .9 the same. And, and that to me, although it's played out oftentimes in my own life in, in gender you know, discrimination, I, I see it everywhere I go. And so for me right now, especially in 2021 on the heels of just this political nightmare that we've been through, I think if we, if we started uniting over common ground, that'd be a really good place to start. Mm, yeah, I love how we started this podcast by talking about unity and empathy, and it's part of our closing themes as well. Aviana, last question, which I ask every guest, what does grit mean to you and how can our audience practice more of it? I'll give you an example. To me, grit is the saying, when the life, when the life, when life gives you a, a heavy load, don't wish for a lighter burden, but a stronger back. So same question to you, what does grit mean to you and how can the audience practice more of it? Mm. I think to me, grit is resilience and perseverance, that which takes courage. Mm. And it's typically from my experience, inspired by purpose and passion. So I think listeners could practice more of it by targeting their purpose or passion 
being courageous in the way that they approach it and being consistent and resilient as they, as they continue toward it in the, in the long term. I love that grit as an expression of courage, as an expression of passion, as an expression of resilience. I love that so much, Afiana. So in closing, where can the audience find you and how can the GritCast community be helpful to you? Hmm. Well, they can find me on Instagram, just my first and last name, Aviana Minear on Instagram. They could find me through my podcast. It's called Uprising by Aviana Minear. And that's a great place where I personally, I think it's a little bit more personal, um, authentic representation of what's on my mind and the types of people that are fascinating me lately. Because Instagram tends to be a highlight reel, as beautiful as photos can be. I, I don't always feel like I'm the best at using that for my most authentic way. So I would encourage people to check out my podcast and and stay connected. Yeah, those are places. Mm, I love that. And a final note just from me to you. Um, I wanted to acknowledge you, Aviana, for your endless activism for women and other minorities, for your championing of authentic expressions of empathy and understanding the other side, and for your golden heart. It's something I've seen for a long time, and I think the world should know. So thank you again for coming onto my podcast, Aviana. Oh. Thank you, Kevin. I look up to you. I look up to you so much. I mean that. So thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're doing this. Thank you so much. All right. Chat soon. Thank you all so much for tuning into this episode of The Gritcast today. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you can get all the latest episodes delivered fresh off of the press. You heard that right. Fresh off the press. Also, please leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening. It really helps our show get discovered by new listeners, and it's also great feedback on how I can continue delivering world-class content. Finally, if the show resonated with you, please consider sharing it with your friends or larger community. Alright, that's all folks. Stay gritty and stay humble.